0: My name is Steve Atkins, I'm the lead pastor here at Hillcrest, and I have the privilege of being able to deliver today's message, and I want to just begin with a reading, I'm going to jump right into it so I have enough time here today, a reading in Luke chapter 24 and verse 13, Luke 24 and verse 13 is where we're going to read, and uh, yeah, it'll be up on the screen there, and uh, you can also open a bench Bible too if you know how to find Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all in the near the back. All right. It says, now that, same, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Just a little bit of context. Uh, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection. But there's a lot that they don't know about that story yet. Jesus himself came up and walked with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in, those, in these days? What things, he asked. This is Jesus being very In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, "'How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory?' And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to where they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. I want to just come back to Verse twenty-seven. It says, "And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the Scripture concerning himself." Today, I want to talk to you about how you read the Bible story, the the overarching story of the Bible, and how you tell your own story. And um, that's basically what I want to talk about. And we'll we'll uh, get to those things today. But first thing that we need to say is that the Bible is all about Jesus. And this story illustrates that, or declares that, or says it so clearly you can't miss it. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. That means Jesus is referring to what we call the Old Testament, uh, the parts of the Bible that were written before Jesus uh, came as a baby in Bethlehem, lived his life, died, rose again. He's talking about what we call the Old Testament. He took that and he explained to them what was said in all of that concerning himself. how would you like to have sat in on that Bible study? You know, how would you like to, yeah, that would, wouldn't that be amazing to just sit in on that, that moment where Jesus says, hey guys, let me just sort of flip through the Old Testament for you. Let me explain that this is about me and that this is about me and this is about me and that's about me and you see how this is about me and this prophecy and this, this illustration and this type and this timeline and this and this and this and that would be the best Bible class in the world. And now what happens now is because we don't have the whole script of what happened, all we know is he started with Moses and the prophets, and he went on from there. We don't have all of that, but many people have written books. In fact, we gave out a book resource a little while ago, the Jesus Storybook Bible. We said, take this home, read it. It'll help you to understand that all these things in the Old Testament are pointing forward to a future event in which they'll find their fulfillment, and that's the the coming of Jesus. That's Jesus all these things are pointing towards Jesus now it isn't just this story that that Luke uh, recorded but um, look at one of Jesus other followers John he records Jesus words he's, he's the Pharisees who are the religious um, big shots of the day are really coming against Jesus they, they didn't really like Jesus on general terms and uh, he is firing back at them and this is his response when they're they're saying we're the guys who know the bible and we know all these things and we've studied all these things and so you should listen to us because we have authority because of what we know and he jesus responds and says in john 5 39 and 40 says you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is saying, you have studied the Old Testament, studied it, studied it, studied it, read it, memorized it. And somehow, you are missing the heart of it. You are missing the fact that it, in every page, testifies about who I am. And when I show up on the scene, you totally miss it. You totally miss it. You totally miss it that this is about is about Jesus another you know quizzers are studying the book of John I don't know many quizzers are left in the room probably lots of them are in the grade six to eight class but if you're if you're quizzing or if you have a kid in quizzing they're studying the book of John and and I think they have a quiz meet in two weeks we're gonna host a bunch of uh, quizzing families here um, the book of John is full of this back and forth between Jesus and the Old Testament, where it's sort of like saying, Jesus did this, and he did that to fulfill this. In doing that, he fulfilled this. This prophecy was, like, for example, um, I won't read it, but John 7, in John 7 it talks about how um, some people were were uh, accusing Jesus, you're not the Messiah, you couldn't possibly be the Messiah because the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. Now, they were just, ill-informed. They thought he was from Nazareth. They didn't realize, because of the census of C- under Caesar Augustus, he and Mary traveled to Bethlehem, and Je- or Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So even the accusation that was made saying, you're not the Messiah, was proving that they're a Messiah, because they're quoting uh, Micah. They're quoting the prophet Micah. They're saying, the prophet Micah said this, you had to be born in Bethlehem. And again, even in their attempts to try to discredit Jesus, they were giving credit to Jesus, because He was fulfilling that prophecy. You find that all through the book of John. And as it gets to the end, like past chapter 13, it just ramps up. It's just like everything he's doing at the end, it's just like John is tying it back. He's saying, it's in, it's in, it's in the Old Testament. You can see it. You can see it. All these things. Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament through almost every turn of of what he his life and what he is doing. I discovered this one this week, and this one just really. I still have not digested it, but it sort of blew my mind when I first discovered it. This is out of John 12. It says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. And this was to fulfill the words of of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. So obviously Jesus was doing amazing things and it was being revealed that he was God. But they weren't believing. For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, I'll come back to that, he's blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts so they, cannot, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn. Otherwise, I would heal them. And then John writes, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now hang on to this. John is writing this, and he says, Isaiah says elsewhere this part about being unbelieving and blind and all this stuff. And then he says, Isaiah said this. Why did Isaiah say this? Because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. When did Isaiah see Jesus' glory? Well, this is verse... John is referencing verse 10 out of Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm just going to read you Isaiah chapter 6, 1 to 5. Okay? So this is Isaiah beholding, according to John, Isaiah beholding Jesus' glory. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, Isaiah cried. I'm ruined from a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. What does John say about that passage? He says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. I never knew that till this week. I never saw that till this week. When I saw it, I was just like, it's all you. It's all you, Jesus. I, I mean, you've just got to praise him. I, I think this is going to sink in deeper and deeper as I go forward. But when Isaiah was in having this... Um, transcendent, but yet scary experience because he encountered the holiness of God and realized he was not holy in his his own self. John says he was beholding the glory of Jesus. People like to compartmentalize Jesus, like just sort of uh, shrink him down, right? Say, well, here's God in the Old Testament, and then Jesus is really not around at that time, and then he shows up here in Bethlehem. But if you read John, and quizzers are doing this so they'll know this, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and the Word was with God. And then it goes on to say, who is this Word they're talking about? It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and you catch on, oh, it's Jesus. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, that whosoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. So where was Jesus in the Old Testament? He was there. And this is why it makes me stir crazy mad when people say really limiting things about Jesus. Here's one of them. But Jesus never talked about such and such topic. They'll say, well, yeah, in the Old Testament it talks about that topic, but Jesus never actually said a single thing about that. And I'm like, do you know who Jesus is? do you understand who Jesus is? Because if you understood who Jesus was, you would understand that the Old Testament is his domain, and it's written by him. Don't tell him he didn't say anything about that topic, whatever your pet topic is. Read all of Scripture. It's all his. Don't limit him to a 33-year span of Oh, it's just like all the recorded things, which, by the way, the disciples say if all those things were recorded, but what he said and did, you couldn't contain all the volumes. But that's another thing. Jesus is God. Jesus is God from the very beginning and before the beginning. So when you read the Bible and when you read the Old Testament, Especially, but every part of the Bible. I mean, it's easy in the Gospels. It's just talking about Jesus. And it's probably easier after Jesus because they're reflecting back on Jesus. But when you read an Old Testament story, realize that probably there's some way, you might be missing it, but it's okay, that this thing is pointing to Jesus. There's probably so many ways it's pointing to Jesus. If you could have a Bible study with Jesus, you could catch all the ways, but we don't. But how we read the Bible really matters. So I'm gonna give you some examples. And it's really just an excuse to use my favorite whiteboard. So I just I just did a bunch of snapshot little stories here. Some of them are from the Bible and some of them are from real life, because I said it's important to realize In how we read the Bible the big overarching story of God and how we tell our own stories one important thing is supposed to come out in both of those and that is the fact that Jesus is better that's supposed to come out as you read the Bible and as you tell your own stories that's supposed to come out so I'm gonna try to help with that okay by illustrating so let's start with this one have you ever heard the, to- the term, well, we did, people use it this way, they say, so, like, oh man, I did something wrong, I erased something off the, the work computer, uh, well, let's blame it on Bob, he can be the scapegoat. Have you heard the term scapegoat before? you know where it comes from? It comes from the book of Leviticus. Yeah, it actually comes from the Bible, we use it all the time. Who's who's going to be the scapegoat for this thing, you know? Like, you know, the government does a bad program. They fire this low-level guy, and they say, well, he's going to take the blame. He's going to take the fall, right? But really, someone else, he's just taking the blame for someone else. In the Old Testament, let me read it to you real quick, so you get it? It says, when Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. That's a goat, by the way. Not only Jesus is better, but someone else's artistry would be much better than mine. But that's a goat. I I worked at putting his horn different places, and he he looked like a demon every time. But anyhow, (laughs) that's a goat—a nice furry goat—and I can't draw any better than that. And you'll just have to imagine. The tenth meeting, he shall bring forward the live goat. He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. And the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. So when, where did the scapegoating come from? This is where it came from. The high priest laying his hands on the head of the goat. Now you say, that's weird. That's weird is that the best God could come up with? And the answer is no. That's not the best God could come up with. The best he could come up with was Jesus. Why did they do that then? Let me write this in so we remember what it is. The scapegoat. Why did they do this scapegoat? Because it it was a type of Jesus. It was a type of Jesus. It was sort of like a, 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 a symbol. So when Later on, when Jesus arrives, these Jewish people, they know this history. They know this practice. They know it inside out. It's been done for thousands of years, and they know it, they know it, they know it, they know it. And then here comes someone who is willing to take all the guilt and all the blame and all the sin. In fact, the scripture says Jesus became sin for us. But the difference between Jesus and the scapegoat is this was a temporary fix. It's totally temporary. It only lasted for one year. And then you had to do it again. And how far were your sins removed from you? Well, as far as the goat was. And if you wandered back home, too bad. But Jesus was a permanent solution. When he died on the cross... All the blame, all the shame for your and my sins, past, present, and future, is what he died for. And for those who receive him, for those who believe in his name, for those who put their trust in him, in what he's done for them, they're forgiven. And it's not a temporary forgiveness, it's permanent. So Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's what we call a type. A type. Let me give you another one. I I was reading through the Bible with my two older kids when they were very small. They were really small when we were reading this, and I thought, what should we read? Well, we end up reading through First and Second Kings, and First and Second Kings is a bit of it's it's got a repetitive thing to it. Basically, it's like the records of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. It was a divided kingdom at that time. It once was one country, but now it was divided, and uh, and basically, this is how I read it to them. I'd say, okay, I'm going to read about King such and such. And I want you to guess, is he a good king or a bad king? Now, I knew in advance that all the Israelite kings are all bad. If you, if you know that part, you know that. And, and I knew in advance that most of the kings of Judah weren't good either. In fact, there'd just be some of the kings of So it's sort of like this exercise in frustration. Do you think he was a good king? And after we're about three or four stories in, they catch on. They're like, no, probably bad again, probably bad, because they're mostly bad. Right? It just recounts all the wicked things they did, worshiping idols, sacrificing their children, uh, doing all sorts of weird stuff that was, go- was bad. Right? And so that you get story after story. says, then they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then occasionally you get this guy who says, they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But almost everyone then has this tagline that's why this picture has a king's crown. But it also has these little trees and this little, this is my little statue, but whatever. Back then, they had created these, this place where you could go worship idols. They call it high places, high places. So up in the hills, in the trees, they would uh, erect altars and idols and they would go do abominable things up there. Lots of things that were really atrocious. And so, as I'm reading through the Bible with my kids, it's like, oh, it's a good king. But there'd always be the same tagline. But he didn't remove the high places. Even if he honored God his whole life, he didn't get around to taking care of this one nasty bit of business. And so we read this again and again and again. And it began to form in me. I was like, come on. Isn't one of these good kings, even though there's very few of them, going to finally deal with this? Aren't they going to lead? Aren't they going to eradicate this high place, which is, is totally wrecking things in Israel? And finally, in 2 Kings 18, you have to get that far into the story, you get to this story about Hezekiah. And here it is. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David, that would be his great-great-great-great-grandfather, had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, because they had started worshipping it. Oh yeah, it says that. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. And Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands of the Lord he had given Moses. So you're like, oh, yes, I've been waiting for a king like this to show up. This guy got it right. And you know what we like in our heroes? Perfection. We like perfectioner heroes. Well, he comes along and I'm just like, yes, Hezekiah. The only problem with Hezekiah, you get to the end of the story of Hezekiah's life and he sort of falters at the end. Not in a massive way. He doesn't turn his back on God. But when the Babylonians' um, representatives come to visit him, he shows them the wealth of his kingdom. You know, when you talk about dominant stories, you know, what's your trust in? I don't know what's happening in the whole story, but I wonder if at that point Hezekiah does what every king does, you know, gets gold fever, and he shows them the wealth his king, and Isaiah, the prophet, has to come and confront him about it and say, because of what you've done, the Babylonians will be back and with an army. And, uh, and Hezekiah is satisfied with the fact it won't happen in his lifetime. And it seems to me there's a a tinge of greed and selfishness and pride that's come in. And I go, no, he was a perfect king. I want a perfect king for Israel. I want a perfect king for me. I want leaders who are flawless, don't you? It's a longing that often tips us off to how the Old Testament speaks about Jesus, even in the things where we can't even see how it could represent Jesus. It's a longing, right? So here we have an imperfect king. Imperfect. Even Hezekiah. But guess what? Jesus is better. Jesus is a perfect king. He's a leader not beset by greed or insecurity or pride or, in fact, when he came to live and amongst us he came and took on the form of a servant servant leadership what a concept eh? I that's you know that's a really a thing that's sort of growing anywhere not even just in christian circles but in in uh, secular circles there's books being written about how leaders have to be servants where did they get it from jesus the ultimate servant lever leader the ultimate perfect king so you might be reading the old testament And you go, this story annoys me. I wish David didn't sleep with Bathsheba. I wish Moses hadn't killed the Egyptian. I I wish Noah hadn't got drunk at that party. All of the heroes in the Old Testament have got some sort of flaw if there's enough written about them. There's the occasional guy who gets two lines and you go, look, because there's only two lines, we don't know anything bad about him and he comes off pretty good. It's just like you and me. We can come off pretty good until people get to know us. But we're hungry for integrity. We long for someone to be good to the core. And we're frustrated that we're not it. I hope you know yourself enough to know that. I've discovered that in, sh- in, in, you know, in spades in my life. But we're longing for this. And our longings tell us, our longings tell us a little bit about what Jesus can provide. Because he's the one who made us. Remember, he's not just a person of a 30-year period. He's the creator God. What's this one? Paul, runs. he he goes to Athens. This is actually after Jesus. But I find it a very interesting story. After uh, Jesus has died and rose again, it says, Paul was waiting for his friends in Athens, and he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. This is Acts 17, and I'm going to pick up at verse 22. He was greatly distressed to see the city of Athens was full of idols. So Paul, I mean, verse 22 says, he stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, that's what the place was called, and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So that's what this is. An altar to who? An unknown God. I think they're just covering their bases. Or they had a longing for something more than their current idols or pantheon of gods could provide. I lean on that one a little bit more strongly the more I look at it. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So he says, you're longing for something more. Let me tell you about the one that you're longing for. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Right? How, how did it work in the Greek and Roman God system? Well, you had gods of water, gods of war, gods of love, you know, gods who could run fast, things like that, right? So that's what you had. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not, and he's not served by human hands. So he's dismantling the gods that they're seeing right around them, the idols that they have. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. So you're serving a Greek or a Roman God and someone tells you about a God who's not far from you. That's quite a revelation since you're serving at a distance from Zeus or Mars or whatever, Aphrodite. That's quite a revelation that he's actually interested in you finding him and having a relationship with him, and he's not far from you. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Now he's just quoting rock star philosophers of that era. (laughs) And some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. We are his creation. We are made by him. That's... So therefore, since we are God's offspring, since we're created in the image of God, since his fingerprints are all over you and me, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image that made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to change their minds, to change the way they think. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul is coming at, he's coming saying, you've got a longing for something you haven't experienced. Zeus doesn't do it for you. Mars doesn't do it. Aphrodite doesn't do it for you. Neptune just can't measure up. He's saying, I see that you have got along and you're very religious, wanting to get to God by all sorts of sacrifices, by all sorts of approaches. And he's saying, let me tell you about the God that wants you to know him, wants you to find him. In fact, has initiated from the other end by sending Jesus, by sending his son. So he starts from their human longing and he goes towards describing Jesus. So we have an unknown God. But as we are saying, Jesus is what? He's better. Thank you. You get a gold star no one else. He is better, isn't he? Let's try that. Jesus is better. He's, better. He's better. He's better. He's knowable and wants to be known. I left this one blank for time. I didn't think I'd get to it, and I won't today. So, when you read the Bible and you find a longing in there, why did Adam mess up, and Adam and Eve, right? Why did Noah, why did Moses, why? I mean, if you go to the Bible and you say, I'm going to read about the heroes of the faith, you find out they're very frail. And that they do bad stuff. And that's actually sort of the point. It leaves us hungry for something better. So now let's take it away from what the Bible says and let's take it to our own life. Now I've shared some of these stories with you, so I'm just going to skip through them really quickly. If you were here in church, you would have heard them. I talked to you about my frustration with my father. All right, let's do just to make it two words. Ooh, that's bad. Let's just call it father frustration. And I turn towards God, the Father. Not right away, took me a decade at least. And I asked him to father me. I wrote it this way because I was actually lying on my back when I prayed that prayer. So that's me lying on my back. (laughs) You can pray anyway, but that's just how I happened to do it now, so I remember it. And said, would you father me? And I found out through that process and discovered that God is affectionate. And that's what I was looking for. From my earthly father, and that's what I found in my heavenly father. And actually, that's how I became as I followed, as I worshiped the, this affectionate God. I actually became affectionate towards my earthly father. That was an incredible miracle. Was a, let me move on. What was this one? You guys remember my story. Some of you remember, you were here when I talked about my video game. What's the last word? Shame. My video game shame right? How I would feel like I'm failing at areas in my life, and then I would go into hiding, escape mode. People use all sorts of things. I happen to use video games. That was my poison, and I'd go away to try to win in some area of life, and then I'd come out of that, and I'd have more shame heaped on top of the shame I already had. Failing in life, now I just burn through eight hours playing a dumb game that doesn't matter. So shame upon shame upon shame and Jesus didn't come and actually pour more shame on top of me like I thought he might. He actually saw me in my pit of shame, reached down and grabbed me by the hand and he pulled me out. And he did that by his grace. I found out that God is gracious. Jesus is better. He's a better father. I don't know how to say this. I won't say he's a better coping mechanism because that's not how you'd say it. But but He was better than what I was using to medicate my pain and my shame. I found that out. He's better. This one, I, I won't have time to tell you this one, and I'm actually going to leave it untold for a reason. I had some financial fear. I talk about this at our Set Free Retreat. If you come to the Set Free Retreat, November 16th and 17th, I'll tell you the whole story. But it involves me, my dad, and a grocery cart. What I found out in the end was that God is a great provider. In fact, a better provider. This was a story from last week. Remember we talked about uh, the woman who had a bad boss. She wanted some affirmation from her boss. And I'm bringing this story back up again for a reason. Because I don't think we really sort of milked the real uh, best part out of it. And that's this. is You have been there and i have been there and i don't know if you got that last week i don't think you, i don't know if we all got there you've probably been there and i've been there for sure in fact i remember distinctly a season in my life i've i've had a ton of different bosses because i worked a lot of little jobs along the way but i remember one in particular where i wanted my boss to recognize the work that i was doing so i redoubled my efforts and i tried to make sure they saw what i did and i got into meetings sort of Almost, I must have been just reeking of that vibe. Affirm me, affirm me. Tell me I'm doing good. And I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. I, okay, this is how bad it got. I started talking to coworkers saying, yeah, you know, I just feel like, you know, I wish I could get a little bit more feedback, and I wish I could, you know, I said in every different way that I need affirmation, I want affirmation, I'm hungry for affirmation, and I couldn't get it. And you know what? I am so surprised how, again, all of these things took a long time. But you know what? In the end, the answer was Jesus. In the end, the answer was Jesus. I was going to my boss to get the affirmation that I could get from my heavenly father, that I could get from Jesus. I just was looking in the wrong location. So I switched my, I I, I started, in this story, I started to treat my father differently started to treat him a little bit like, well, like a brother, sort of, like, like a fellow traveler, like a, even though I still respected him, him as my father and, and, you know, those sort of things, I just started to realize he's a sinner saved by grace, so am I. He needs the affirmation of his heavenly father as much as I do. Changed the game. And this thing, I realized that God had, he had better words to speak over me than the words that were rattling around in my head in my shame. And that he was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he wasn't wagging his finger at the guy who kept failing. Jesus was better. In this one, I won't tell the whole story, but my fear went away as I began to realize Jesus in this story. And then in this one, man, I just kept shaking my head when I finally got to the moment where I realized I had access to Jesus this whole time and I kept thinking I needed something from my boss. I'm not telling you if you're a boss not to affirm your employees. What I'm telling you is that you have access to, if you have access to Jesus and through God sending him, we do. If you believe, if you receive If you trust him with your life, you have access to all of this. So when you tell your story, and this is a growing thing. Remember we said gospel fluency is just a growing thing. We're going to be challenged probably every week. I hope you've been challenged every week. If you haven't been, then maybe we haven't raised the bar high enough, but I've been challenged every single week. Like when someone asks you what Je- the difference Jesus has made in your life? What leaps forward? What leaps forward? I hope that even asking you that question today could be a catalyst, where it could be where you go, ah, oh, I'm not sure, totally sure about that. But you know what? Think about it. Meditate about it. Give it some time. Begin to reflect on it. I bet there are things Jesus has, for for many of you, he's already done. But even that process could lead you to the, because there's probably areas of your life where you're just going to the wrong source for all these things. And Jesus is better than all of those things. So I've labored this morning to try to explain something that was confusing to me at first. When I would hear preachers say, Jesus is the better Adam or something like that, I'd go, I don't get it. Now, I've tried to do that so that at the end I could read you this page from Tim Keller. Then it would make more sense. Tim Keller's a pastor in the States. It says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test. Think about what Adam did. Totally failed, didn't he? Fell into sin, the fall sinful nature all those things came about with Adam it says jesus is the true and better adam who passed the test in the garden remember jesus in the garden of, of gethsemane father if if there's any other way than going to the cross take this cup from me take this assignment from me if there's any other way but not my will but your will be done jesus said it the, or adam said it the opposite way not your will but my will be done and Jesus did it, right? You see the opposite, how they did it differently. It says, Jesus is the true and better Adam. If you read the story of Adam and you're go and you yelling at the page and saying, Adam, why didn't you do it right? Someone did do it right. He passed the test in the garden. His garden was a much tougher garden than Adam's. And his obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Adam. Jesus is the true and better Abel, right? Cain slayed his, his brother Abel. And it says, who though innocently slain. Both of them were innocently slain. It's a type of Christ, right? It says in, in, uh, I think it's Genesis 3, no, 4, 3 to 6, somewhere in there. The story of Cain and Abel. But it says that his blood cried out from the ground. God said that about Abel. His blood cried out from the ground. What? For justice. In accusation to a brother who murdered him. It says, Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, his blood cries out. Jesus' blood cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. He's a better Abel. Jesus is the better Abraham. Abraham followed God to a far-off country. But Jesus is a better Abraham who answers the call of God, who leaves all the familiar comforts of the world to go into the void not knowing where he went. Jesus left his heavenly throne and came to be with us. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who not only offered, was, was not only offered by his father on the mount, but who was truly sacrificed. Remember, Isaac was not sacrificed, but Jesus was. Jesus was truly sacrificed for us all. While well, God said to Abraham, now I know you truly love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son from me. Now we at the foot of the cross, can say to God those same words. Now we know you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is a better Jacob, Jacob who wrestled with God. But Jesus who wrestled and took the blows of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and disciple us. Jesus is a better Joseph, Joseph, remember he saved all of Egypt and all the surrounding lands by having a good plan and helping Pharaoh to, Pharaoh to implement it. But Jesus is a better Joseph who's at the right hand of God the Father, God the King and forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and he uses his power to save them. Jesus is a better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates the new covenant. Jesus is the better rock of Moses. Remember, Moses struck it who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the better Job. Remember Job, the guy who lost everything? The truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. I love he wrote it that way. <laughs> Jesus, thank you that you saved me, your stupid friend. No, I, <laughs> I just love that Tim Keller threw that in there for fun. Jesus is a better David. Oh, David. Kills Goliath. Such a great guy. And then adultery with Bathsheba and the end of his life doesn't go so great. But that story about David and Goliath. Jesus is a better David. Because Jesus' victory becomes the people's victory even though we didn't lift a stone. Even though we didn't lift a stone to accomplish it ourselves. Jesus' victory is a better victory. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing losing an earthly place, but ultimately lost a heavenly place, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, like Esther did, but when I perish, I will perish for them to save them. Jesus is the better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in He's the real Passover lamb. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the better priest, the better king, a better sacrifice, better lamb, a better light, a better bread. Jesus is better, he's the better. I was chatting with a guy and he was saying, just talking about something happening in, in, on the news. And it was like a protest, like for a great cause to change something in the world. That's all I'll say about it. And I'm watching this with a friend and I said to him, I said, wow, they really want that. They really want that. And I didn't realize at the time what I was saying exactly. But he says, my friend, who's more astute than, my, than I am, he said to me, he says, I think their longing is on display. And what they really want is the kingdom of God. What they really want is to experience the better. Can't you see it everywhere? Can't you see it everywhere? People saying, I want this in every relationship. If only my parents would. If only my spouse would. If only my child would. Jesus is a better parent. Just like I had to switch my expectations away from my dad and towards my heavenly father. If you're a son or a daughter here today, and you feel that inside of you, that longing, if only I could get this from my mom or my dad, or if only my mom and dad would have been this or are this, I'm gonna tell you, you have parents so that you can switch your affections towards this parent. Not that you stop being loving towards your own parents or respectful towards your own parents. That's commanded by God. But that you would realize that there's a better, there's a better father. My kids have a better father than me. I have a better father than my own earthly dad. If you're a spouse, saying, oh, if only my spouse would... The language in the Bible it keeps talking about Jesus being the, the, in a you know, marriage with his people, and he's the better spouse. You know, if Adam keeps going to Eve and try, if Adam keeps going to Eve and trying to get from her what he should be getting from God, it's not going to work. And if Eve goes to Adam and tries to get from him, what she should be getting from God, it's not going to work. We need to go to God and get those things that we need so that we have something to give when we go to the other one. if only my kids would. You know, Jesus was the better son. He was such a son. He was the best kid. Obedient. Perfectly obedient. Woo! Instead of saying, well, why can't my kids be like Jesus? (laughs) If they would be, then I'd be a happy parent. Jesus is the better son. Perfectly fulfilling all the requirements of his heavenly father. So, if you have expectations laid on your kids that if only they do these things, I'll be a happy parent, I I could live vicariously through them and be satisfied internally, I would say, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus to satisfy that part inside of you. And then you can actually come back to your kids differently. Because you don't need them. It doesn't mean you won't have standards in the family, you won't have rules, you won't have all those things. That isn't, that's still in the Bible, right? But you won't come hungry and empty, needing someone to fill. Because Jesus is always going to be better at that anyhow. Would you stand with me? Worship team will invite you guys back to come join me.